Well, you hear lots of stories today about people who deconvert from the Christian faith. Have you heard that word? That's not my term. I don't actually prefer it because I actually believe when you become a child of God, you belong to Him, you're in His family, nothing can separate you from the love of God. So I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that. But we use language that people in the world use sometimes to explain things. And there are people who have, in their own words, began to follow Jesus, ascribe to Christianity, but then something happened and they deconverted. They kicked Christianity to the curb. They said goodbye to the church. They apostatized. What happened? Well, surveys tell us that sometimes that happens because they encountered new material. They read something. They read something and it deconstructed their religious beliefs. And they were either unable or unprepared to counter that deconstruction. Uh, and their doctrine, was, they thought, was maybe dismantled. And so they couldn't answer it. Other surveys tell us that they met a new friend or a new acquaintance, a new partner maybe, somebody they fell in love with, who challenged them on their beliefs, who questioned their faith. Or maybe it was a professor at college is so often the case. And they undermined their beliefs and they could not respond intelligently. So all of a sudden Christianity seems less compelling, less plausible. Secularism seems more attractive and so they kick the faith to the curb. But there's something else that happens too that ties into what I want to talk about today. Sometimes surveys tell us that people deconvert from Christianity because they didn't meet somebody new, they didn't read something new, they faced a new experience. Maybe they left the environment that they grew up in, that they were really sheltered and they had really strict, rigid, fundamentalist beliefs. And maybe they moved to a, uh, a more metropolis area like New York. It actually happened to one guy whose testimony I read earlier this week named David Sessions. He moved from a small conservative town in Texas where he had strict, rigid, fundamentalist upbringing, was very sheltered, and he moved to a metropolis in New York City. Um, and he had a new experience, and he began to look around in this new environment, and suddenly his faith didn't make sense to him anymore. His faith did not make sense, but everything else he was hearing, in his mind at least, did. His, his beliefs, he thought, were contradicted. Now, here's what I want to make really plain to you. In those instances when that happens, the core beliefs about the virgin birth of Jesus, His perfect sinless life, His substitutionary death, His glorious resurrection, His, his physical return in the future, those things I don't think were overturned because I don't think they can be overturned. Amen? But there are secondary beliefs. I will call them cultural beliefs that aren't really biblical, that were somehow connected to these core beliefs that they learned growing up, and those things were overturned, and then they ditched Christianity. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Let me read for you a quote, and then I want to show you a slide. Tim Keller wrote a book, his latest book, and it's incredible. It's called Making Sense of God. And he says this, When people are presented with the Christian faith, the actual doctrines that they believe to become a Christian are often given against a backdrop of other cultural beliefs, implicit beliefs, attitudes, and expectations. Sometimes those cultural beliefs include ideas about what non-believers must be like, how life ought to go for a true believer in God, and what sinning and violation of the rules should feel like. All of those background cultural beliefs are instilled in a variety of implicit ways And they become an important part of the supportive tissue that helps Christianity make sense. If they give way, so may faith in the core doctrines give way. Does that make sense? Here, let's put this slide up, Kurt. Take a look at this. 
So what are the core beliefs? Virgin birth of Jesus, deity of Christ, sinless life of Jesus, his substitutionary vicarious death, that means he died on behalf of sinners, his, rex- his resurrection and his physical return. Those are essential in their core beliefs. However, look on the other side here. These are cultural beliefs. Christians won't suffer much. Good, faithful Christians dodge bullets, right? Tornadoes don't touch down in our neighborhoods. Fires don't sweep across our city. We don't get the cancer diagnosis. There are a lot of people who teach things like that. Non-Christians are mean. Non-Christians are nasty. Non-Christians are monsters. Christian leaders are flawless. Conservative politics are superior. Sinning always feels terrible and leaves you in misery. Science is always at odds with the Bible. Are those things true? And, and that's just a small list. I could go on and on and on. Many of those are misleading, if not all out false. And listen, when people are brought up and those things on the right that are cultural and non-essential and not even right some of the time, if they're connected to those things, when a person's brought up believing the core beliefs, but they're attached to that, then they go out in the world and they meet a non-believer for the first time, and this non-believer not only is not a monster, they're very kind, they seem to be very genuine, very sincere, they care about racial equality, they care about social justice, they, they volunteer in soup kitchens, they care about rescued pets. People start scratching their head and they say, wait a minute, that's not, I wasn't brought up believing that, so strike one. And then, I could go on and on about this, I don't want to, the reason I'm talking about this is because the one I've circled, that's a big one, folks. That's a big one. When people grow up believing that good Christians don't suffer very much. I mean, maybe we get a B- minus or a C-plus on our report card or scratch our knee or something, um, but that's, you know, that's peripheral. God takes really good care of us, and we're not supposed to suffer because we're his children, and good parents protect their children, and a lot of people grow up believing that. And then they go out in the real world, world and they either see a faithful Christian whose life looks like a train wreck or a dumpster fire, right? Or they themselves feel like they're serving God and they get cancer, and what do they do? They deconvert. It happens all the time. It happens more than I think pastors are willing to talk about. Now, some of that is because of the prosperity teaching that you see, and unfortunately, a lot of it happens on TV and people that don't go to church, they drink that stuff in all day and there's so much false teaching in that. I'm not saying every person on TV is a false teacher, But there's a lot of that floating around because it's attractive to people, right? If you serve God, you don't suffer. I mean, man, if if you believe that that if you believe that trouble is a sign of God's displeasure, which is totally false, I mean, if you just look at the life of Jesus, that's false, right? Jesus was the what? Suffering servant. He was a man acquainted with sorrows, acquainted with grief. Look at Job, the most righteous man in all the earth, Job chapter 1 says. He feared God, he shunned evil, he walked uprightly, and he had integrity. God even bragged about Job to Satan. He said, have you seen Job here? Ain't nobody like him. And look at Job's life. He lost everything except his faith, right? So just look at, the, look at Job's life, look at Jesus' life, look at the apostles. They were all martyred except for one, and that overturns it. So if you believe that suffering and trouble, if you're a Christian and you suffer that that's somehow a sign of God's displeasure, then you also have to believe the flip side of that, which says if you prosper, if you're healthy, if you're wealthy, if things are going good for you, if you make the honor roll, 
you make six digits and graduate at the top of your class, then God just loves you to pieces. And neither of those things are true. Right? And we need to talk about that. We need to talk about that more. So what does all this have to do with trouble? Uh, here's the next slide. Man, you're ahead of me today. I like it. You know, this is in the Bible. It says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. My kids love building fires in our backyard, and they love hitting it with stuff. <laughs> Which is dangerous in dry months in Florida, right? But you know what happens at night when you hit a fire in your backyard that's been burning for a few hours? Sparks, just especially if it's dark and you're outside the city limits, sparks fly over all over the place. And the Bible uses that as a metaphor for, yeah, life's like that. It's full of trouble. And you know what? You don't have to wait for trouble. You don't have to go looking for trouble. Trouble will find you, right? In fact, it says, man is born to it. You're born. It's like, welcome to trouble. Here it is. There's a song I, I read the lyrics to. It said, um, no matter it said, trouble will find you wherever you go, no matter if you're fast, no matter if you're slow. doesn't matter. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, you are going to encounter trouble. And the Bible gives us an incredible, in fact, an insane perspective on it that you're not going to find anywhere else in the world. And I want you to know this this morning. I want you to be encouraged by this because it's incredibly helpful to us as children of God to know that trouble is not a sign of God's displeasure. It's not a curse. It's actually a gift. I know. Burden of proof's on me now, though, right? I'm telling you that things like cancer are a gift. Now, that's crazy. That's insane. But I'm just telling you what the Bible says. As the sparks fly upward, the Bible is not high in the sky by and by. It's realistic, and it corresponds with reality. Who couldn't agree to what that text says? Man is full of trouble. So, Romans 5.3, we read it earlier. What does it say? It says, we... Rejoice in our trouble. Now, what does that word trouble mean? It's actually a Greek word that means, I'll say the Greek word for you. It even sounds, it's one of those autophonetic words that actually sounds like what it means. Flipsies. It means to squeeze something. And it's actually used in the Bible for squeezing juice out of grapes and squeezing oil out of olives. Flipsies. You squeeze it, there's pressure applied. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. You don't like it. You don't want to be there. That's what that word means. And that word is all over the place in the New Testament. Philipses, your health, conflict, relational conflict, depression, persecution, your marriage, your kids, anxiety, family problems, money problems. Am I hitting anybody in here today? I, I'm serious. I thought about our congregation this week. I did. I thought of each and every one that I can remember. I'm getting older. I can't remember everybody. But every person that attends here or that's a member here or that I've met here, and you would not believe, I don't want to say it out loud or say the people, the trouble that's represented just in this congregation. Now, when I say trouble, I don't mean their life is filled with sin. I mean there's pressure. And it's not something they chose. It's not a result of some kind of habitual lifestyle that's destructive or poor choices. It's just like a health crisis or money or conflict in the marriage. Trouble is represented here, so this ought to hit us right where we live. It's pressure. And listen, these afflictions that Paul talks about can be anything. And they're not abnormal, they're normal. When Paul went around planting churches, he told his congregations this, through many tribulations, flipsies, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's almost as if this pressure, everybody walks through it to varying degrees. Everybody does. 
And what Paul says is so insane to us because he says rejoice in it. Now listen, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? And I don't know about you, I grow tired of these mic drop kind of things that people do, you know? There's something very intense, there's something very important, very critical, and we think we can give this one-word answer and then drop the mic, right? Paul, Paul says, rejoice in your trouble, mic drop, and he walks off. But listen, that's not what this is. This letter that Paul wrote is actually 16 chapters long. And I love this about the Bible, because the Bible is logical. Christianity is a reasonable faith. It talks about things that nobody else is willing or able to talk about. It's coherent. It's rational. It's logical. It makes sense. And Paul, this isn't just a one-word mic drop answer that he gives. Paul, and we don't have time to go through all of it today, but he explains how in the world we can view something so oppressive and hard and dangerous um, and, and, and sad as a gift and how especially we can rejoice in it. He talks about that. And Paul's not the only one who said it either. A lot of people said this. You know, Jesus, the most famous sermon he ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you are persecuted because of me, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for you're blessed. Jesus said that. You know, James said it. James said it too. James, who was thrown off of the top of the temple and clubbed to death in the first century, he said this, my brothers, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials of any kind. Consider it joy. So James said it. Jesus said it. Did you know the apostle Peter said it too? He said, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. So this is not just isolated. Paul wasn't a kook. He wasn't crazy. Everybody said this, but I wanted us to look at Paul because of Paul's resume. Do you know that Paul was a trouble expert? In fact, he seemed to be a little bit of a magnet for trouble. And I want to read his, his resume to you. Because if you hear somebody tell you to rejoice in your sufferings, friend, I want some credentials. Don't you? I mean, seriously, if you had cancer and somebody walked up to you and they heard a diagnosis and they patted you on the back and they said, rejoice, man, it's a gift. It's a gift from God. Would that mean very much to you if they'd never suffered from cancer? Or if they never had anybody close to them that suffered from it? I'm just being honest and in the flesh maybe, that would hack me off. That would hack me to pieces. In fact, I'd probably have some words for somebody that said something like that to me or somebody in my family. But listen to Paul. This is his resume, and this is in the Bible. Let me just introduce you to Paul. He's going to be our tour guide for trouble today. This is his personal testimony. It's inspired, and it's in the Bible. I, Paul, suffered imprisonments, countless beatings, and was often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And he's talking about with rocks, okay? Just so you know there. <laughs> Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. He was in the ocean floating for a night and a day alone shipwrecked. Just in the Mediterranean, it wasn't warm water, okay? And there were probably sharks there and a lot of other stuff. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. On top of all that, he was a pastor too, and a church planner. So yeah, this guy was acquainted with trouble, and I don't know about you, but I want to know what he has to say about it. Don't you? 
I mean, I accept those credentials is what I'm telling you. And that's just one section in many places in the Bible where Paul is just brutally honest and says this life is hard and it seems even harder as a child of God, but trouble is a very unique and mysterious and strange gift from God and we need to know that about it. So that's what Paul says. He says it's a gift. And I will tell you this again. There's, there's three different ways you can view rejoicing in trouble. One is crazy. It's, it's kind of a masochistic, I'm a glutton for punishment, bring it on. I'm going to be a monk, I'm going to, monk. I'm going to deny all, all worldly pleasures and go down into a castle and put on a rough potato sack and put on a belt with spikes on it. Bring on the, the pain, I love it. No, that's, that's definitely not what Paul's saying, okay? He's not saying rejoice because of your trouble. That's masochistic and that's insane. But neither, and here's where we get tripped up sometimes, neither is Paul saying rejoice in spite of your trouble. He's not saying that. That's more of this stoic, you know, stiffen your upper lip. I'm not going to let this bother me. I'm not going to let it get to me. I'm going to be reserved. I'm going to be calm. I'm not going to show any emotion. It's being cold. It's being detached. It's being without emotion. And listen, here's the scary part about that. There's a lot of people that face their trouble that way. A lot of Christians that I know do that. And here's the scary thing, friends. I'm going to be honest with you. It works. It's a little bit pragmatic. You can get through trouble that way. But it will do something to you that you won't like. It will harden you and it will make you bitter and it will make you resentful toward God. Have you ever met somebody like that? I can tell you. Here's how you know who they are. I'm not trying to point any fingers at anybody, okay? Here's how you know who those people are. They're the last person in the world you want to go to when you have a problem. Because they lack any empathy, any compassion, any sympathy. They're like, well, you know what? That does happen when you do that. Or that serves you right. Or that will happen. A lot of, yeah, they say that too. A lot, of, a lot of people face suffering with just kind of stoic, you know, stop blubbering. In fact, I'll be honest with you. A lot of parents parent their kids this way. Sarah and I watched the documentary the other night. It's one of the saddest things I've ever seen. It's called The Mask we wear, or the mask you wear, the mask you hide behind, something like that. And I know I'm getting off track, but maybe this will help you illustrate what I'm talking about. It talked about this very narrow view of masculinity that's in America today, that's being reinforced by celebrities and, 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 and fathers. And it's this. What does it mean to be a man? It means you don't cry. Real men don't cry. Okay, let me think. Jesus wept. Okay, Jesus is not a real man, right? I'm just, I'm just being honest. You've got to take all that stuff and evaluate it with what the Bible says. Jesus Christ was the fullest, most complete, perfect human being who's ever existed. And there's nobody that's ever been truly more masculine than Jesus. So if whatever your view of masculinity is doesn't comport, com, comport is that the right word? With Jesus, then something's got to go, either Jesus or, or your view, right? So they say, you know, real men don't cry. Real men don't show their emotion. Real men fight. And, and, and I get it. It's... A, I have three boys, and that's, that's a very real part of growing up, but Jesus never threw a punch, guys, ever. He took a bunch, but he never threw one. And I know I'm getting way off track here, but that's what that kind of view of stoicism does. In the interviews in that documentary, here's the really sad part. You remember this, honey? Most of the men they interviewed that talked about, what was the first time you ever learned about masculinity? It was from my dad, and he slapped me. Most of those men were interviewed from prison. Now, you can just think about that for a little while, what that kind of, what that view of trouble can do to a person. It will harden you, and if you're wounded, if you're wounded by trouble, you know what you will turn into? A wounder. It's what happens. 
What starts at the top trickles down. So there's this stoic attitude that a lot of people have today is, you know, I can get through this, um, stop blubbering, pull yourself together, don't talk about your problems, just pretend like everything's okay and smile, but on the inside you're a wreck. And that's not what Paul's talking about either. Okay, it's not stoicism, it's not masochism, there's a third way. He doesn't say rejoice in spite of your trouble, and he doesn't say rejoice because of your trouble, he says rejoice in your trouble. Rejoice in your trouble. In other words, there's this supernatural power that is present in the midst of your greatest pain that enables you to be joyful in it. That's what Paul says. That's what he says. So trouble is a gift. And that's, that's the strangest message maybe about Christianity is this. It is a gift. It's got strange wrapping on it, but no other religion in the world will tell you this. Every other religion in the world says escape trouble, run from it, deny it. Some, some religions tell you to deny it. It's an illusion. It's not real. <laughs> and I don't know, that sounds pretty cruel to me. If somebody has cancer and you're like, hey, listen, dude, I know this is terrible and you're on your third round of chemo, but this ain't real. <laughs> well, it sure feels pretty real, man. And when you lose somebody of cancer, that seemed pretty real too, didn't it? I know I'm talking about cancer a lot. It's not because, I, I don't know, that just seems to be a big issue today. Everybody in this room knows somebody or you're touched in some way by that disease. It's horrible. It's a horrible disease. And God's sovereign over it. It's a gift. So, not only do we have something to rejoice in during suffering, but the Bible teaches us in this passage in Romans 5, but somehow... Somehow our rejoicing is actually enhanced by our suffering. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, I want to show you another slide first. This, this is what happens sometimes. This is, this is how some people view displeasure. You know that? Or excuse me, how some people view trouble, how some people view suffering. They think it's God up there with a sniper rifle and he's angry. Um, in fact, I met, I, met, I met a lady years ago tried to get her to church, witnessed to her many times, befriended her, befriended her family. One day she showed up in, in the church I served at many years ago. She showed up. She started listening. She paid attention. She would come just sporadically. And one day she came up to me and she said, you know what? Something truly wonderful has happened. I believe that God has saved me and I want to follow Jesus and I want to become a member of this church. Hey, hallelujah. That's amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. Now, I didn't know her background or what she grew up, what kind of beliefs she grew up with. Um, but then trouble started hitting her. Trouble came into her life. First, it was with her ex. She'd been divorced. Then it was with her health. Then it was with her daughter. Then it was at work. And eventually the day came when she lost her job and I didn't see her anymore. And one day I saw her out away from church and I said very gently like, hey, you know what happened? How are you doing? And she said, you know what? She said, if that is how... God treats the people that he loves, then I don't want any part of Christianity. That's what she said. Now look, she, I had an answer for her, but she didn't want an answer. She wasn't looking for an answer. She wanted out. Because probably what happened is what I told you earlier. She heard or, or believed or was influenced by this teaching that Christians just never, they're never touched by trouble. She thought this. She thought that God's love and trouble were mutually exclusive realities. That's what she thought. That's what somebody told her. Look, it's very hard in a five-minute conversation to overturn years of bad teaching. You know that? She wasn't having it. She was out. She was done. There was nothing that I could do. And that happens, that happens a lot. So are good Christians trouble-free? 
Are faithful Christians spared the severity of, of suffering? No, it's not, that's not true at all. It's not true at all. So, I'm here to expose the myth that the closer you are to God, the less trouble and suffering you experience. That's false. So here's point number one. God wants you to know the purpose of your trouble. This passage in Romans 5, there's a process. Here's what it says, verse 3. Not only that, and by the way, just, just to let you know, the that that he's talking about, Paul just talked about the most glorious doctrine and truth of the gospel in the Bible, that we are justifi- justified, we're made right with God, we're forgiven by faith in Jesus, not by our works. That's a good truth, isn't it? I mean, that's the cardinal truth on which the whole church and Christianity hangs and stands or falls. And so Paul says, not only that, <laughs> and what he's saying is, the thing I'm about to tell you is just as glorious as that, so you know something good is coming. He's just talked about justification by faith. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Verse 4, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Did you hear what Paul says? He says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing In other words, we know this. We don't just think about this time to time. We don't feel this. This is not an emotional um, truth to us. This is something that we know. It's something that's been poured out in our hearts. It's something that we've experienced. It's something that the Bible shows us and teaches us. So what's this process he's talking about? Endurance, um, steadfastness, proven character and hope. This This is what this means, ladies and gentlemen. It means that trouble grows you. Okay? That's the secret. The secret's out. That's why trouble is a gift, because trouble will grow you in a way that nothing else will. It will. That's what trouble, that's the purpose for trouble. And if you know the purpose of something, you won't view it with suspicion. You won't view it with anger. You won't view it with doubt or resentment. You'll see it, even though it's hard, even though it's painful, even though it's sometimes agonizing, you'll know there's a good God behind this gift and he has a very good, noble, glorious purpose for this. And he's going to see me through this. That is what the purpose of trouble is. It's going to produce in you what you are not able to produce on your own. Let me, let me say it this way. Paul Tripp says this. God, with trouble, when God brings trouble into your life of any kind, this is what he's doing. He's going to take you somewhere that you don't want to go, okay? God's going to take you somewhere with this trouble that you don't want to go in order to produce something in you and through you that you couldn't do on your own without it. That's what God's doing. Now that's hard and that's painful, but it's glorious too because you look back and you say, look what God did and that would not have happened had that trouble not come into my life. It wouldn't have happened. He grows us. Because listen, we would be spoiled rotten without trouble. (laughs) Wouldn't we? I mean, I made this list. We want self-parenting kids, don't we? Any parent here not want that? I want my kids to get up on their own without me waking them up. I want them to make their own breakfast, pack their own backpack, get dressed, shower, shave. Well, maybe their kid, they don't shave yet. I want them to get ready for school. I want them to go to school. I want them to do their homework. (laughs) I don't want to have to do anything with them. I want them to be self-parenting. We want empty highways that we drive on. Everybody pays the taxes for them, but only we use them, right? That's what we want. We want an easy life. We want empty waiting rooms at the doctor's office. We want easy marriages. We want jobs with perks. We want friends who love and respect and honor us. We want spouses who trust our inside and our wisdom and think we're incredible. We want that, don't we? We want children who honor us. We want peers who value us. 
We want a universe where we never get sick and we never die and we're never distrusted or maligned. That's what we want. And if God gave us that, you could not tolerate to be around us. Nobody could. Just like kids when you give them whatever they want all the time. No trouble produces something in us that we couldn't produce on our own. It's like an acorn. You know, an acorn is an amazing thing. You can hold up an acorn, and did you know that that acorn within it has the potential and the capacity to populate an entire continent with these mighty oak trees? Did you know that? But there's one thing that has to happen first to that acorn. You know what it is? Death. It's what Jesus said in John 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will not be able to produce any fruit. And that's what God has to do to us, to grow us, to squeeze the fruit and glory out of us that he puts in us when we're saved. It takes flipsies, it takes trouble, it takes pressure. That's what happens. It's painful, it's like pruning. You guys know about pruning? I got a slide I'm going to show you in a minute. Um, actually, you can pull it up there. That is a healthy... We got some people that know a few things about shrubs in here. I know we do. I see you, Jeff. I know you guys know about this. So that's a, that's a crepe myrtle. I'm an Arkansan. I'm so stupid. I used to call it crate myrtles. Crate, like a, a shipping crate. No, it's a crepe myrtle, okay? And they're beautiful, and they're all over the place, and there's so many different, there's infinite varieties of colors and thicknesses and all this. Those are beautiful, and that is a healthy, pruned crepe myrtle. They provide shade. They're amazing plants. They're very forgiving. Um, forgiving meaning if you, they suffer trauma, they'll grow back. That's why you can prune them and not know what you're doing like me. So that's a healthy one. Now let me show you my crepe myrtle in my yard, okay? Here we go. Yeah. That's what the crepe myrtle in my yard looks like, okay? They're supposed to be very, uh, very aesthetically beautiful, very pleasing to the eye. They're supposed to be in full blossom, but no, no, not mine. Mine doesn't provide any shade. It doesn't provide anything pleasing to the eye. It doesn't, that's, it's in, it's in full bloom on the, <laughs> the right, that, I think there's two flowers on that thing, and aren't they supposed to produce seeds of some kind? No, mine doesn't. It's ugly, it's hideous, it's broken, and do you know why? Because that thing has never been pruned, ever. Now, that may not be true of all crepe myrtles, it's, tr it's true of this one. Nobody has ever given that thing some TLC. Nobody's ever taken pruning shears to it. And so because of that, you know what? It's been left to grow as wild as it wants, grow wherever it wants, however it wants. And because of that, it's, it's hideous and it's not helping anybody. It, my kids can't even climb this thing, okay? So here's what I did a couple of weeks ago. Some of you that are experts say, you messed up. Yeah, I know. It's the wrong time of the year to prune your, your crepe myrtle. But I went out there with a, a, a reciprocating saw and I pruned that thing. I wish I had a picture to show you. Uh, and then I read online that there's a very specific time of the year you're supposed to prune these things. And listen, here's the deal. They're forgiving, okay? My, my crepe myrtle forgave me. You, you can prune them at the wrong time of the year, uh, and it won't kill them, but it will maim them. They'll be hideous. They'll have this big, ugly, knuckle-looking knuckle stump on them, and they won't be as healthy. And then the, the, the branch that grows out of that will be weak, and it won't be able to even hold the flower that's supposed to bloom on it. I didn't know that. And this is all, you know, this is in the Bible in John 15. Jesus talks about every branch that abides in me, I prune it. So that, what's the rest? So that it bears more fruit. And sometimes all we can see is a bright, shiny, razor-sharp, 
pruning hooks coming toward us instead of the beautiful blossom and the shade and the strength and the beauty and the grace of what's going to happen to that plant when Jesus is done with us. But here's another lesson in that. Only God knows how much trouble with His Spirit we can handle, right? He does. He knows there's a specific time of the year to prune us. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a special snowflake flower, right? And, <laughs> and there's, God knows that if He prunes me in certain ways, I blossom. And there's other things that I don't, I don't do well with. And God knows that about each and every one of His children. And that's what trouble does. It grows you. And, and I know that's a big word. I know growth can mean a lot of things, but it, there's so much packed into Romans 5. Let me just give you a few things, that, a few things that, that trouble does to us. This is how it grows us. Number one, it softens us. It softens us. I'm a little bit OCD. Those of you that are in my home group know that. Um, yeah, oh yeah. I like things nice and neat and tidy. Every furniture has a, a place within a couple square inches that it goes. My wife can tell you, I can come home and instantly know if this chair has moved a little bit, if that toy's out of place, I know all that. And that means I like nice, neat, organized things. I like dishes either in the cabinet or in the dishwasher. Where I don't like them is in the sink. I don't like them there. And so my wife and I get along great. When I see dishes in the sink, I get rid of them. I go in there like every man should, right? And I start scrubbing. We got this scrub brush. Um, trouble softens us. It does. Sometimes my wife will have a casserole or she'll bake a pie. Um, and you know that hard, crusty layer that's left on the... You guys know where I'm going with this, don't you? She puts it in the sink and puts water in it. And I'll be walking home and I'll see that thing. I don't like it. I don't like that thing in there. I want it out. I don't want all that hard, crusty stuff off the edge. So I get in there and I take that scrub brush. Some of you guys know where I'm coming with this, don't you? And I start scrubbing on that thing. And you know what? It won't come off. I scrub it, I turn the scraper, the scraper side over and scrape it, and I'll spend 10 minutes sitting there scraping that, and my wife will say, what are you doing, honey? I'm like, I can't handle this. This thing's got to be up there, be in the dishwasher. She says, why don't you just let it soak in the water and the soap I put in there, and it'll be fine. See, we do that sometimes, don't we? Sometimes trouble, we need, we need to soak in it and get soft. It makes us soft, takes the rough edges off of our life. I told you this earlier, if you've ever met somebody... Um, that hasn't been through trouble and hasn't been softened by that. Maybe they've been the stoic view. They've been hardened by it. They had this hard outer shell. They lack compassion. I'll give you another story. And I've told you the story about my, my wife suffering from postpartum depression when we were in California. Now, up until that point, guys, I'm just being honest. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fallen, broken man. And I had some really rigid views about depression and mental health. And they were not right. They were inaccurate. I thought that everybody who suffers from any form of depression is because of sin. I'm embarrassed to tell you that, but that's what I believed at the time, okay? Until, until my wife suffered from it, you know? And it wasn't anything she did to bring it on herself. It was a natural um, hormone imbalance. She abruptly stopped nursing our son instead of weaning him, and it did crazy things to her body. And she spun, I mean, it was, it was literally, it was out of control. It was a very hard time. I've shared the testimony about it, and God was gracious and delivered her from that, and I want to tell you something. I have a special, special affinity toward people because we went through that for six months, and it was a nightmare. I have a special affinity for people who struggle with, guess what? Depression. Why? Because that trouble softened me, and it softened her, and many people have reached out to my wife. Women have reached out to her who were maybe shamed and faced the stigma of other Christians that don't quite get depression, the organic variety, because she's been softened by that, and it's humbled us. 
And we're very open to talk to people and walk them through that. Sometimes the person that's gone through the most trouble is the person you want to go talk to and have coffee with, right? Isn't that a beautiful thing? And do you know that wouldn't happen? It would not happen if God did not lovingly and graciously bring trouble into our lives. Help us to go through that trouble with His help, with His Holy Spirit, with His love, and then we're softened, and then we're a useful instrument in His hands. Because that's what God wants all of us to be, right? He wants us to turn around and help somebody else who's going through a similar affliction. That's what trouble does, first of all. It softens us. It cultivates empathy. I mean, the Bible says that anyway, right? When you're saved, it says that God takes this heart of stone in you, metaphorically, and He turns it into a heart of what? Flesh. It's soft. It's moldable. It's tender. It's gentle. It's empathetic. It's compassionate. That's what trouble does to us. Here's another thing trouble does. Next slide. Trouble draws you closer to God. When you're under the squeeze, the thlipsies, the affliction, the cancer, the finances, the relational conflict, it draws you, it pushes you deeper into the arms of Jesus, right? It's interesting to me. I'm going to read this in a minute. It's, it's interesting to me. Here's Satan over here. Here's God. Um, I don't believe in dualism. God's actually up here, okay? And Satan's down here. <laughs> let, me do, let me do it that way. Satan's not sovereign. God is. But God has a purpose for Satan or he would have killed him a long time ago. I believe that. He's the devil, but he's God's devil. Um, and what, what is Satan's design with trouble? He wants to destroy your faith. That's what he wants, just like he did with Job, but it didn't work. Satan wants to destroy your faith with trouble, and God wants to deepen your faith with trouble. And listen to this. This is what Paul said in another place, another part of his resume. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction, Philipses, we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that trouble was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, we were ready to die. We, it was so, we, we were ready to despair. It was so incredibly painful. But God did it because he wanted us to rely on him. That's all. God wanted us to say, Jesus, I need you so desperately right now. I was driving to our, our new offices or, or getting constructed right now over on Graves Avenue, and I was driving the other day. There was a soft drizzle. It was a little bit overcast. And I saw a really sweet moment between a, a teenager and his father. It was a, kind of a bad accident. This teenager looked at me. He caused it. It was his fault. I don't know if he was texting or on the phone or what, but just a sweet young man, and he was on the phone, and you could tell he was emotionally shaken up. I don't know if he was on the phone with his mom or with the police. There were some paramedics there. There was a pretty bad damage to his car, and I could tell he was shaking. And I just started praying, Lord, help, help that young man. Ah, and I'm going to cry talking about this. Ah, sorry. But out of nowhere, this car zooms in and pulls up, and a middle-aged man about my age gets out, and he walks up, and his, this boy is on the phone, and he puts his hand on the back of him, and he, he starts just caressing his shoulder. Yeah. And the son turned around, and he, he saw it was his dad, and he just melted. He just melted into a puddle of tears and pretty much dropped his phone. They just embraced just for a long time. And I can see the dad, you know, rubbing his son's back, telling him it was going to be, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I didn't go to bed till 2 o'clock. I'm kind of emotional right now. <laughs> what a sweet moment, though. What a sweet moment between a father and a son. I want moments like that. You know what? I'm not going to have them probably until my son has trouble that drives him into my arms. And I know on my best day when I'm th thinking the right way as a Christian, I'm going to say, God, I'm not wise enough to tell you what kind of trouble to bring in my children's life. 
please don't kill them. <laughs> don't kill them, but drive them into your arms and drive them into my arms. Remind them that I'm here, that I have wisdom, that I have love, I have compassion for them. That was a sweet moment that I witnessed right there on the side of the road. And, and God has the same intention, the same purpose for me. The Bible says this, <clears throat> excuse me, says, you will call to me in the day of your trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. That's all God wants, guys. The whole Bible is filled with the prayers of desperate people that say, God, please help me. I'm in this trouble. God says, I know, I sent it, and I'm here. I'm going to get you through it. I'm going to help you because I love you because you're my child. You're a child of God, and there's nothing that can ever separate me from you, including that trouble that you went through that I'm the author of. Yeah. Well, there's a lot more I could say. Trouble prepares us for glory. You know, there's another place in the Bible. Can we pull that up real quick? I'm closing, I promise. We had this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about our human body. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Per persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart, though our outer shell is wasting away. Our inner shells being renewed day by day. And listen to this. Check this out, guys. You want to hear something insanely crazy? Listen to this. For this light momentary affliction, just hit the pause button. All of that stuff Paul's going through, he considers it what? Light and momentary. <laughs> Boy, it sure doesn't feel that way, does it? It feels heavy and long. <laughs> but he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Hallelujah. Glory to God. The new heavens and the new earth is going to be so much more spectacular because of that trouble that you went through. I just read the testimony of Johnny Erickson Tata the other day. 1967, she dove off of a dock. She cracked her neck. She's been sitting in a wheelchair for 50, just celebrated this year, her 50th year as a quadriplegic. And she said that that wheelchair is a gift from God to her. Because it's going to make the new heavens and the new earth so much more incredible. In fact, this is what she said. Let me read this to you. I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven and then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior holding his nail-pierced hands and I'll say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. And at that point, Jesus is going to open up my eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. You know, she's a quadriplegic. She can't use her arms or her leg. And she said this, I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. And that's what the Bible says. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And here's the last thing, guys. Why is trouble? Man, I'm sorry. I'm not apologizing for crying. I'm apologizing because it's tripping up my sermon here. <laughs> Here's the craziest thing about trouble. How can we go through trouble and view it that way and rejoice in it? How can we do that? And the answer is this, that Jesus went through trouble and he didn't have the help that we have. Psalm 46.1, what's it say? God is my refuge and my strength. He is a very present 
help in time of trouble. Do you know that Jesus could not say that when he hung on that cross? We say it. We're going through cancer and we say, God is my refuge and my strength. He's a very present help. He's here right now with me, helping me go through trouble. Jesus couldn't say that. Why? Because God wasn't there when he was on that cross. Now, maybe you've never heard it explained like this this way before, but friends, that is the gospel. Jesus Christ was forsaken by God on the cross. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have God's presence in our trouble. He didn't. You know, when Paul said, put that back up for a minute, Kurt, that last slide. When Paul said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, we don't get crushed. Why? Because he did. Jesus was afflicted in every way, and he was crushed, the Bible says. Paul goes on, we're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Now, Jesus wasn't driven to despair, but he sweated great drops of blood in that garden. Do you know why? That's actually a medical condition that happens to people. It happens to soldiers before they go into combat. It happens to people that are going to be executed for crimes. Their capillaries, because of the stress in their body and their mind, burst and they sweat blood out of their sweat glands because of intense stress. Paul didn't do that. Jesus did. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Jesus was persecuted and forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Jesus was destroyed. Now, he was resurrected from the dead. Hallelujah. That's the victory that's ours. But Jesus suffered all those things with God forsaking him on our behalf, friends, because that's what we deserve. Sin deserves punishment. But because God loves us so incredibly, loves us, we don't have to go through the trouble that Jesus did. He was crushed on our behalf. He was a curse and we're the blessing. Isn't that amazing? That's what the Bible says about trouble. 